the oil and gas industry, the home of innovation, cutting edge technology, and the extraordinary people who make it all happen. Together, we're powering the world. Here are the stories of business builders who are leading the way in the energy sector. This is Zebra Marketing Solutions Oil and Gas Business Builders Podcast, where we explore the real experiences of today's leaders in business growth with key takeaways to start implementing right now in our own companies. And now here is your host, Laura Kamrath. Welcome to the Oil and Gas Business Builders podcast. Welcome to all our listeners and to Deji Adaye, who is here as our guest today. Welcome, Deji. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Yourself? Awesome. I'm doing well, too. Thanks for being on the show. Good. Yeah, so I'm going to introduce Deji. Mr. Adaye is a vice president with Ryder Scott Company LP, and he is responsible for coordinating and supervising staff and consulting engineers of the company in ongoing reservoir evaluation studies worldwide. Before joining Ryder Scott, Mr. Adaye worked with BP, Devon Energy, and Murphy Oil Corporation in both subsurface engineering and leadership roles. He's responsible for the country of Trinidad and Tobago's yearly natural gas audits on behalf of the Trinidad Ministry of Energy and Energy Industries, or MEEI. Mr. Adaye earned a Bachelor of Science degree in chemical engineering from University of Lagos in Nigeria, a Master of Science degree in petroleum engineering from Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas, and a Master's in Business Administration MBA degree from Rice University in Houston, Texas. Mr. Adaye is a licensed professional engineer in the state of Texas, a project management professional certified by the Project Management Institute, or PMI, and an active member of the Society of Petroleum Engineers, or the SPE. He is also an active member of the Society of Petroleum Evaluation Engineers, the SPEE, where he currently serves as the Treasurer Secretary for the Houston Chapter of SPEE. He's also professionally qualified as a Reserves Estimator and Reserves Auditor for the Society of Petroleum Engineers, or the SPE. Awesome. So that's a pretty mm-hmm. impressive bio, Deji. Um, and and uh, Deji and I know each other actually from Rice, where uh, you completed an executive MBA, am I correct? I did a PMP, actually. Oh, you did the PMBA. Okay. So yeah, I was also doing the PMBA. PMBA. That's what they used to call the it. Back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also did the PMBA, and we were in school at the same time, though we weren't in the same class. So um, it's it's been a while since I saw you, and uh, great to wow. see you here now. Thanks for being on the show. So That's tell good. me... You know, we did our MBAs at Rice, and then I also didn't. I didn't. I did my uh, undergrad at Mount Holyoke College in Western Mass. Tell me, why did you choose uh, A and M University? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, being originally from Nigeria, uh, Nigeria is a big country. You know, oil and gas is like one of the main exports for the country of Nigeria. So growing up as a kid, uh, I mean, I had dreams of becoming a petroleum engineer. And when I had finished my undergrad, at the time I was working with a company called Texaco Overseas. They've since been bought over by Chevron now. Uh, back then, when I worked in my internship, I had a, I had a mentor. 
And he had advised me to, you know, if I wanted to go ahead and pursue my uh, graduate studies to consider, you know, actually just just told me go to go online, do your research, and the top schools that came up at the time were NM, UT, Colorado School of Mines, and uh, University of Houston as well. It's kind of you know that mix as well. And uh, you know, you always want to go for the best. At the time, NM was best. Some people will argue that UT was the best, but I'm kind of biased, so I did the AM and I'm glad I did. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a long way to come to go to university. <laughs> that's good. Awesome. So now you're at Ryder's Spot, and um, you've been there for a while. So tell me, how how are things at Ryder's Scott, and uh, how long have you been working there? I joined Ryder's Scott back in 2014, April 2014, to be precise. And uh, it's been a really, really good experience. Prior to Ryder's Scott, I used to work with, well, I had, you know, I worked there few of the operators that were BP. And I was actually fresh out of AM. I joined with BP. I worked with BP for five years. And then I decided to join up with Devon Energy. And uh, it's funny, you know, we're going cycles in the industry have been in existence forever. And at the time, we had the financial crisis in the industry. So when I joined up with Devon, you know, unfortunately, we joined in a financial crisis period. And my, I was working assets in the Gulf of Mexico shelf at the time. And all, all the assets, imagine I'm, I'm in a cool job and I come to the office one day and I read my email and I get this feedback saying all the assets in the Gulf of Mexico are getting sold. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was the reality for me back then. And luckily, you know, we did the divestment. I was able to secure another job at Murphy Oil and I spent some time with Murphy, four years. Yeah. And I decided to myself, uh, you know, I got the skill set. I, I did the MBA. I have my PE license. I want to become a consultant. And uh, that was an easy transition for me at the time. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so that's why you moved to be a consultant. That's, that's great. So tell me a little bit about, you know, I mean, you've got that experience, but what do you think about new graduates coming out into the oil and gas industry right now? You know, it just seems like a really difficult time. What What would you have to say for them? Wow, it's 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 tough. It's a tough time to be in the industry right now in the oil and gas business because even experienced hires with a lot of experience that have something that, that bring a value to the table, even they are getting a hard time. Even they are having a hard time finding jobs because. Everybody's trying to cut their cost, their GNA, and uh, it's it's really tough. So for for young graduates coming out of college right now, I would just tell them work on expanding their skills. They should they, they need to work on expanding their skills in other areas, maybe related because like data science, for instance, is a big thing these days. So they might want to consider taking some you know credit courses for data science, which will eventually enhance your skill sets in the petroleum engineering or engineering sphere, you know, as, as, as the case may be. Because it's all cyclical. I mean, you have years of boom, years of doom, years of boom, years of doom, seven years of boom, seven years of doom. It's all cyclical. So yeah. as you continue to improve on yourself, even, even in, in the down times, those skills that you pick up will always add value to you, you know, when things recover. Yeah. You, yeah, that's you, a really good... You're a lot more competitive, really. You get a lot yeah. more competitive. People trying to hire. Yeah, so that's that's a really good point. Is just to keep continuing to expand your knowledge and expand Absolutely. your value. And Absolutely. yeah, I mean, it it seems like it wasn't long ago when we just recently had the last downturn. So yeah, hopefully this isn't becoming uh, just well. It's, it's gonna come again. Like I said, it's it's, it's a cycle. Yeah, you're gonna have years of you know robustness and then years of just you know farming. I mean, it's just it's just bad. Yeah. So. 
I mean, that being said, you know, we've got this cyclical nature of this industry, which, you know, is always going to be the case. What do you think is the future of the oil and gas industry? Wow, that's a, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, I mean, it continues to evolve. I can remember when I joined with BP in January 2004, oil prices was, you know, in the hundreds or, or close to something in that range. And everybody... They couldn't pay petroleum engineers enough money because they were just throwing money at them at the time. The economy was good. I mean, people thought it was going to last forever and it shrunk. Actually, around that period, if you look at the S&P 500, the, the, the EMP sector at the time was about, I'd say, 25% of the S&P. Now, fast forward, you know, 2020, it's, it's about 5%. So you can see that over time, it will, you know, what, you know, 16 years or 17 years, it shrunk dramatically. Over the time, and that's because Wall Street has lost a lot of invest, uh, a lot of money on, on, you know, betting on, you know, the shell plays and, and stuff like that. So they, they, we've kind of put a bit of taste in their mouth, <laughs> so to speak. And then you have things like renewables, solar, wind, those technologies, the cleaner technologies that continue to grow. So everybody just, you know, nobody wants the carbon footprint, and nobody wants the fossil fuels anymore. So. I, I hate to say this, but it's, it's kind of like a declining industry just based on the trend of, like I said, the S&P 500, we have 25%, 25, something in that range back 16 years ago. Now we're 5% of the S&P. So that's just shrinking. Yeah. <laughs> However, I mean, we're, we're always going to be relevant because, you know, until we can find an ideal solution, cars are still going to run in fuel. You know, airplanes, well, of course, when, also, this, is, this is after COVID, right? Because COVID has kind of put a damper on everything with the economy because things have to come to a grinding halt. But once the planes start to fly again, the demand and then the factories start to you know, work again at their full capacities, that will drive demand and then, you know, the prices will pick up. But uh, long term, uh, I mean, if, if, <laughs> if, if I was a betting man, Actually, if I was a veteran and I need to answer that question, I'm probably a billionaire right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, so that being said, how about your view on the current and future oil prices? What do you think is going to happen with oil prices? It's it's a similar thing though. It's it's all supply and demand. I mean, now because of the the the, the lack of demand, so to speak, or the little the limited demand, the prices are not just going to be soft. And we might see it being soft for at least a year to 18 months. And then supply, and then you have to think about this. A lot of, a lot of the operators, because they know that if they put their, their product on the market right now, they're going to be producing at a loss, they would have to just shut in those wells and just keep the, keep the reserves in the ground. Because who wants, to, who wants to be in business to make a loss? Nobody. Yeah. You yeah. better keep it in the ground until the prices recover. We, we could have a situation where prices start to recover, and then those companies now say, okay, we want to put it all on the market and that could put another damper on the prices because of oversupply, because people are trying to strive and get as much cash flow out as possible within the, within the time frame that the prices are kind of, kind of, can accept it, can handle it. Yeah, but, yeah. but the oil price conundrum, of course, and then you have the cartel in the Middle East, right? So, you know, that's, that's also another angle. But, I mean, OPEC is, is like, uh, you, you can't predict and they handle so much uh, in, in terms of the global, when you look at Russia and you know that part of the world, they handle a lot of the supply. So they can control, they can control the markets to their, to their benefit. And yeah. I, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not that guy that can say, okay, oil is going to be $60 in a year because everybody has, that has ever predicted that thing has been wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So, so you're an expert on Trinidad and Tobago. You know, you said that you're responsible for the country of Trinidad and Tobago's yearly natural gas audits on behalf of the Trinidad Ministry of Energy and Energy Industries, or the MEEI. And mm-hmm. so how are things in Trinidad? You know, we're here in Houston, but how are things in the Caribbean and Trinidad? Uh, and I know that you mentioned that uh, Guyana and the Caribbean is continuing to produce oil in this current climate, even in spite of the low oil prices. Um, so just can you comment on that? and what you've seen going on in that region? So, I mean, my, my first stint in Trinidad was when I was working with BP. I was actually an expat assigned to go and work in Trinidad. I did that for two years, and that's how I kind of became involved in Trinidad and you know, as, you know, in my career. And I would say Trinidad is, I mean, the Caribbean is an emerging market. There's a lot of potential in the Caribbean, a lot, a lot. And Trinidad happens to be at the forefront of uh oil and gas in the in the Caribbean because I mean right they're right next to Venezuela. Unfortunately Venezuela hasn't done too well. So they kind of reaping the rewards of benefit Venezuela's bad luck, so to say. <laughs> because a lot since it's a, it's just neighboring to so a lot of people coming in from Venezuela to kind of even reside in Trinidad. And then there's a lot of opportunities that Venezuela would have been able to take advantage of, but since they're in that economic situation they're in, they're passing it up to a country, a small country like Trinidad. And Trinidad is just about one point 1.2, 1.5 billion people. So it's a, it's a fairly small country. The bulk of the production is gas. And I mean, there's a lot of potential for the country. There's a lot of very smart people there. I tell people, I mean, people think of the Caribbean like it's some kind of third world thing, but in Trinidad, it's, it's, it's really just middle class and most people are middle class, but most people are educated. The, the country has done a really good job over the years sending people to school, subsidizing tuition for colleges and stuff like that. So it's kind of helped to raise the general, you know, literacy level of the population. So you see a lot of a lot of good talent, a lot of strong talent in that region. Now Guyana, which is the next, which is like a you know a country, just neighboring country to them, they're not as developed as Trinidad. And ExxonMobil, they made those huge oil discoveries in Guyana and uh, they're starting to produce. Some people argue that okay, the since the prices are very low right now, why would you want to be producing the, com- the country's reserves, the country's resources into a, into a soft oil price market? But uh, what some people fail to realize is uh, Guyana doesn't have the expertise that a place like Trinidad does. So in as much when, when an operator comes into a country like you know, Nigeria or Trinidad or like a developing country, so to speak, they, that mandate, their mandate is to develop the people the human capital in those countries. So even though, yes, they're producing oil at very low prices relative to what they would have predicted when they started the project, but they're they're growing the people. They're developing expertise within the country. And that takes time because this is the long-term game. This is not some, you know, five-year year out. This is a 50-year kind of look. So you need people to be able to develop and manage those resources over the long term. So... I mean, Guyana hopefully will probably be another big, uh, and they, they, they'll help to even grow the Caribbean even more. And I can only wish them all the success in the world because, you know, they need it. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And, you know, your expertise there is super valuable. And, you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine being a developing country and having that kind of a, you know, a challenge right now of, you know, what do you do? Because you want to develop the talent, but then yeah, the prices, prices are, are 
low and you know you don't want to just tell everybody okay we're just gonna stop <laughs> for now. <laughs> but uh but that being said so you're also you know you're from west africa and so you know you're working over here and you're focused on trinidad but what would you say emerging african countries should do in order to succeed to succeed in their EMP ventures and do you have any advice you know watching Guyana uh, what do you recommend for the emerging African countries in this climate that's a that's another loaded question another loaded question (laughs) that's another loaded question I'm from Nigeria born and raised yeah I mean I actually did my undergrad in Nigeria like you read out earlier on to the audience and uh the problem with Africa, West Africa, for the most part, is, is the, the endemic corruption. Yeah? I mean, I can, I, I can, you, you don't want to put me on my soapbox on that because I can talk on forever about it. So what those emerging countries need to do, the ones, you know, where like, you know, talk about Ghana, where the Jubilee field was discovered, they just need to work together and learn from the mistakes that, you know, that have been made from in countries like Nigeria. And, you know, you know, the revenue gets generated, but just a select few people sit on that. They just put it in their private bank accounts. <laughs> and uh, the less people just, they leave the people, the masses impoverished. So things like that needs to be checked. There should needs to be checks, checks and balances along the entire supply chain to ensure that people are not looting the government's resources. Yeah. And uh, so again, a lot of, so you, you know what they've done bad. So if you try and make sure you don't repeat the, the bad things that they've done, and then you also look at the good things that they have done. You know, in a country like Trinidad, for instance, most they, they do a lot. They pride themselves in actual having local uh, content to where instead of importing you know a lot of you know a facility and items like that from Asia, they fabricate everything in Trinidad. You know, and they and it's and it's world class. It's not like sub standard. It's world class. You know, facilities. So learning from the good, learning from you know what countries like Trinidad have done correctly could help to you know help them you know make sure that they have a local content and deliver product at the world at the world's highest standards in terms of oil and gas facilities. That's, that's my little take on that. But but corruption in West Africa is, is a big problem. It's unfortunate, but it's uh, I would just hope that they reduce it because it, it may never go away. <laughs> but at least if it's reduced, that would be better. Do you see that type of thing happening in the Caribbean in like somewhere like Guyana or, or is it not quite so much a problem there? You know, they'll, I would say it's not as much of a problem. The, the, the Caribbean is, is a lot more transparent versus Africa. So they, they, they have a little bit more, uh, you know, the, the FCPA and all those Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, those rules, they kind of, they kind of scared of those rules there, you know. So over there, it's not as bad. I would hope. Like, but, but Guyana's problem is is the politics, the geopolitics, because every time they have a ruling party, once that ruling party leaves, the, the four years and they, they leave, the next party that comes over, they scrap all the policies that the previous administration put in place and start afresh. So you're always having to kickstart things every four years or every six years because of political uh, interests. So that, that could be the one thing that could impact it, but in terms of the transparency and the corrupt, the, the, the you know the level of corruption in that in that region is not as bad as you would find in a place like you know I'd say I always put Nigeria because I'm from Nigeria. I mean, we can't say I'm pointing at them. I'm from Nigeria. And I know it's bad out there. So, but there are, there's also a lot of good because 
it's produced, I just produced a lot of talent like myself. I mean, I'm from there, I went to school there and I came out okay. So <laughs> you, you seem pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that just, you know, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, we have the same challenge here in the USA that it's hard for companies even here to predict what's going to happen next when, you know, in the US we've got you know, a presidential administration that changes every four years and, you know, Congress people that change every two years. And, you know, it's it's just hard to know from, you know, when you do have evolving government, it's hard to really count on anything. You know, I, I remember I, I heard T. Boone Pickens speak one time and he was talking about the challenge of investing in renewables that, you know, I mean, renewables rely heavily on government subsidies uh, or are they at least did in the past. And, you know, when you need to look at your economics in terms of what's going to happen with the government in five or 10 years and trying to predict that, it can be a very unpredictable factor in your risk analysis. But, uh, that's true. So you gave me a couple book recommendations that you mentioned that you thought might be useful or interesting to our listeners here in this current interesting climate we are in. Can you recommend uh, some books or resources that you think will be helpful right now? So it's, it's a tough time we're in and uh, a lot of people have been impacted because, you know, the job situations and things like that because, you know, companies are downsizing. Everybody's just trying to survive, really. I mean, so you can't really blame them. <laughs> Everybody's trying to, it's a survival mode. So there's this book, I, I really, I've read over the years, I, most of the books that the key, really good books I have, I, I read them over and over. Just you know, they are like timeless books, right? So John C. Maxwell, it's a book called Failing Forward. So the fact that you fail doesn't mean you know that's it. You have to learn from your mistakes, pick yourself up, and keep moving on. That's really that's what that book really summarizes. But it's Failing Forward. I think it's a really good read, um, and you could actually you know go on YouTube and do an audio book on YouTube. That could be a, a good way to get that resource as well. And then, and yeah, actually, he has a podcast with John C. Maxwell, the leadership, the John Maxwell Leadership Podcast. So that's something in Apple or whatever medium you use to listen to your podcast, that could be a good resource as well. Yeah, so that's, those are, those are I mean, anything John C. Maxwell, I would, I would subscribe to. Yeah, that sounds like a great one, you know, not just for, for business, but for life, really. Yeah, exactly. It's really... <laughs> It's a, it's a life. That's awesome. I'm going to check that out. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show with us, Deji. Thank you for talking about your experiences and your thoughts on the current climate, both here in the U.S. and abroad. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. And thank you to our listeners on the Oil & Gas Business Builders podcast. Thanks for listening. And please tune into the next episode. Thanks for listening to Zebra Marketing Solutions Oil & Gas Business Builders Podcast. Join our Oil & Gas Business Builders groups on LinkedIn and Facebook and see our videos on YouTube and on OGBBmedia.com. Visit ZMSEnergyMarketing.com to learn more about how we can help you and your business design and implement a marketing strategy to retain and attract customers, grow revenues, and gain market share. Join us on the next episode for more great takeaways from business builders who are leading the way in the energy sector.